That day, its beauty was an affront to me, because like most English women of my time, I was wishing for the return of a soldier. Disregarding the national interest, and everything except the keen prehensile gesture of our hearts towards him, I wanted to snatch my cousin Christopher from the wars and seal him in this green pleasantness his wife and I now looked upon. Of late, I'd had bad dreams about him. By night, I saw Chris running across the brown rottenness of no man's land, starting back here because he trod upon a hand, not even looking there because of the awfulness of an unburied head. And not till my dream was packed full of horror did I see him pitch forward on his knees as he reached safety, if it was that. For on the war films I have seen men slip down as softly from the trench parapet, and none but the grimmer philosophers would say that they had reached safety by their fall. And when I escaped into wakefulness, it was only to lie stiff and think of stories I had heard in the boyish voice that rings indomitable, yet has most of its gay notes flattened, of the modern subaltern. We were all of us in a barn one night, and a shell came along. My pal sang out, Help me, old man, I've got no legs. And I had to answer, I can't, old man, I've got no hands. Well, such are the dreams of English women today. I could not complain, but I wished for the return of our soldier. So I said, I wish we could hear from Chris. It is a fortnight since he wrote. And then it was that Kitty wailed, Oh, don't begin to fuss, and bent over her image in her hand mirror, as one might bend for refreshment over scented flowers. I tried to build about me such a little globe of ease as always ensphered her, and thought of all that remained good in our lives, though Chris had gone. My eye followed the mellow brick of the garden wall through the trees, and I reflected that by the contriving of these gardens, that lay well kept as a woman's hand on the south side of the hill, Kitty and I had proved ourselves worthy of the past generation that had set the old house on this sunny ledge, overhanging and overhung by beauty. And we had done much for the new house. I could send my mind creeping from room to room like a purring cat, rubbing itself against all the brittle, beautiful things that we had either recovered from antiquity or dug from the obscure pits of modern craftsmanship, basking in the colour that glowed from all our solemnly chosen fabrics with such pure intensity that it seemed to shed warmth like sunshine. Even now, when spending seemed a little disgraceful, I could think of that beauty with nothing but pride. I was sure that we were preserved from the reproach of luxury, because we had made a fine place for Chris, one little part of the world that was, so far as surfaces could make it so, good enough for his amazing goodness. Here we had nourished that surpassing amiability, which was so habitual that one took it as one of his physical characteristics, and regarded any lapse into bad temper as a calamity startling as the breaking of a leg. Here we had made happiness inevitable for him. I could shut my eyes and think of innumerable proofs of how well we had succeeded, for there never was so visibly contented a man. The way he lingered with us in the mornings while the car throbbed at the door, delighting just in whatever way the weather looked in the familiar frame of things, how our rooms burned with many-coloured brightness on the darkest winter day, how not the fieriest summertime could consume the cool, wet, leafy places of our garden, the way that in the midst of entertaining a great company he would smile secretly to us, as though he knew we would not cease in our task of refreshing him. And all that he did on the morning 
just a year ago when he went to the front. First he had sat in the morning room and talked and stared out on the lawn that already had the desolation of an empty stage, although he had not yet gone. Then broke off suddenly and went about the house, looking into many rooms. He went to the stables and looked at the horses and had the dogs brought out. He refrained from touching them or speaking to them, as though he felt himself already infected with the squalor of war and did not want to contaminate their bright physical well-being. Then he went to the edge of the wood and stood staring down into the clumps of dark-leaved rhododendra and the yellow tangle of last year's bracken and the cold winter black of the trees. From this very window I had spied on him. Then he moved broodingly back to the house to be with his wife until the moment of his going, when I stood with her on the steps to see him motor off to Waterloo. He kissed us both. As he bent over me, I noticed once again how his hair...